Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with Chelsea Hodson about her essay collection, Tonight, I'm Someone Else. Because we reference multiple times some of the seminal work of Marina Abramovich in this conversation, and also Chelsea Hodson's own self-created trailer for this book, I'm going to put videos of each up on the Patreon site for easy reference and access. While you are there, you can check out the growing bonus archive and become a supporter of the show. You'll see there are still copies of Jesse Ball's out-of-print Vera and Linus available, or if you prefer the book I did with Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing. You can find all of this at patreon.com slash between the covers. Hope you enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Chelsea Hodson. Hodson is the author of the much-talked-about chapbook Pity the Animal, a book Maggie Nelson called Wild and Chiseled and Molly Crabapple described as small and sharp as a dagger. Originally published in a sold-out run with Future Tense books, Pity the Animal was later republished as an Emily Books pick. Hodson's writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Black Warrior Review, Hobart, Freeze Magazine, and elsewhere. She's a graduate of the Bennington College MFA program and has been awarded fellowships from McDowell and Penn Center USA Emerging Voices. She has collaborated with the Marina Abramovich Institute's digital journal Immaterial, as well as assisting with Abramovich's installation generator. Hodson is the creator of Inventory, an online image text project, that spanned 657 days, where she cataloged and posed with each object that she owned one by one, as well as inventory under objects under a seven-hour durational performance of inventory that was filmed, live-streamed, and archived by the Marina Abramovich Institute. Chelsea Hodson teaches writing at Catapult in New York City and at Mors Tua Vita Mea in Rome, and is here today to talk about her essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else, just out by Henry Holt and Company. Sarah Manguso says of Tonight I'm Someone Else, Chelsea Hodson tests herself against her desires, 
grapples with their consequences, and presents a surgically precise account of what they were to her. These essays are bewitching. Despite their discipline and rigor, you can smell the blood. Miranda July adds, Hodson's essays have such a sexy drama to them, and ultimately it's the romance of just getting through life, the passion that comes from being a wholly alert woman and living to tell about it. Atticus Lish adds that Hodson's essays are a specialized art form where poetry meets philosophy. They reflect on the gruesome side of being a woman in the excellent tradition of Joan Didion and Sylvia Plath. Finally, Booklist calls Tonight I'm Someone Else a unique collection about being an artist and a woman in a world that doesn't always value either. Welcome to Between the Covers, Chelsea Hodson. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with the title, Tonight I'm Someone Else. I feel like it's a perfect title, and yet uh, a strange one, since we're talking about nonfiction rather than fiction, um, that you're writing as yourself. So how did you land land on this title? Yeah, it took a long time. Um, It came very late, actually, too. So I am someone that's excited by titles. So I have... um, I'll usually, like, I need a title to work with generally, so an essay or a bigger project usually doesn't last very long without a title. Like, I eventually add something to it, and I'll usually um, change that much later or just change it multiple times. So with this book, um, I just kept calling it different titles of the essays, and then um, uh, at one point I was calling it Awful Form, which was... um, a quote from the book of a reference to the awful forms of love. Mm. And I liked that idea of um, just how love and desire can change or shape a person. And um, I think from having that title in my head, I was able to then see the phrase tonight I'm someone else, which appears in another one of the essays um, and see that as a potential title. So I don't have an essay called that, but once I saw that phrase, I thought actually that, is better, I think. Hmm. So um, I was able to identify that. And once I was applying that to each essay, it really worked for me. I felt like um, each essay fed into that title in some way, and it helped maybe the reader come to the book in a different way than my previous titles had. Hmm. But I went through probably like 50 titles oh, wow. before I came to even Awful Form. Yeah, that's a lot of titles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've said that after seeing the documentary about J.T. Leroy uh, called Author, that you've been fascinated by the role and function of persona in nonfiction. Yeah. A genre that I think most casual readers would probably assume doesn't involve personas at all. Um, for those who don't know the story of J.T. Leroy, could could you orient us to that story a little bit, um, to that strange literary tale and then the ways in which uh, your meditation on it uh, relates to this idea of, of persona and nonfiction. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, uh, old enough to be reading those books at the time when that scandal was happening. So I only learned about it much like in the past couple of years. And then when the documentary came out, I became really fascinated by this idea of an author who understood maybe that the culture wouldn't understand or respect her and her image and so she took on this persona where she hired her boyfriend's sister it was I believe um to perform as her and dress as her um 
uh, and so it just became this other self. So even though she was writing everything, there was this very performative side of the writing that no one was even aware of. And in the writing itself, she's claiming to be someone other than who she is, right, we, sh- we should right. say. Yes, yes. So like I said, like I I don't even have the story totally straight. I've seen the documentary and yeah. like I understand, um, you know, the idea of this performance and the visuals of it are really what I'm interested in. Yeah. So I think that's why I'm not like even remembering all the details of the story correctly, because I just love um, in the documentary this the author who doesn't look the way that people wanted her to look. So she found someone and dressed them the way that she thought people would understand the story she was writing. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I really like that, that visual of this other physical self. So that, that's the unique part. When we have the, the part about uh, the author sort of baking, breaking the contract with the reader around what is expected around memoir. So right. creating a new identity, saying that she's a completely different sort of person. Um, she takes it farther with this performance of actually having an actor um, show up at readings and give readings, and, and this person is embraced by a lot of celebrities. Um, but you could argue that even if you're not trying to fool the audience, if, if you're just writing earnestly nonfiction, that, that persona actually plays a, a big role. And I, I'm thinking of Vivian Gornick's book, The Situation of the Story, where she argues that sometimes the reason a nonfiction piece can take so long to write it's because you're still trying to figure out what voice it is or what the persona is uh, of the narrator even though the narrator is in a sense also you Mm -hmm. Um, but that it's a more constructed and stable version of the writer um, that you're writing from a certain vantage point in time uh, under the spell of a given mood even if the writer isn't in that space that they've created the static part about. But I feel like your project isn't that project. Uh, and I just want to, I want to reflect what I feel and then see what you think, but you're not trying to fool the reader, but I also don't feel like you're trying to create a persona as much as the book seems to be about, about the experience of adopting personas. Mm -hmm. Um, even the social politics of what it means to assume a persona, um, almost as if you're looking at your own life as an act of art making or performance, kind of like maybe that's why your fascination is with this actor that shows up in the world and plays this writer. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that sort of vantage point on the book. And then maybe you could just talk a little bit more about this fascination with persona. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you don't, that you see, or I forget how you phrased it, of just that you see the book is interested in these other selves, but not, how did you phrase that? Like, as Well, like if we think of Gornick's view that you're constructing a persona that is going to carry someone through the book, but in a way it feels like instead of you creating a static persona, the book is about the multiplicity of personas that a person could assume. Right. I mean, there is a through line, it's you writing and we get the motifs that re- reoccur, but it, it also feels like there's this, um, disappearance of self into circumstance or disappearance of self into other selves. Yeah. I think the, my writing voice is, you know, just like any voice is constructed and intentional and perhaps performative, but I don't see it as, um, really changing from essay to essay. It's more of like, I think of it as a document of who I was at that time. And it, and inevitably that, um, 
you know, like the feelings or vantage point changes based on the time in my life or the mood of that scene or the location. I see these things as influencing the self and um, kind of beyond a performative sense of just like I'm interested in essays and nonfiction because I like this idea of being bound to what I remember. But that already seems so... um, I don't know, almost like transitory, or I often think of, you know, memories as dreams. I think that it's interesting to think of memories and quote truth as a boundary um, and a restriction um, when those things don't even seem concrete to me. So I like kind of flirting with that idea and kind of dancing around it. Um, And I guess persona comes into play with that of like, how do you maneuver through something that you're not sure you remember correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that requires this element of a constructed voice or a voice that is um, trying to make art out of one's life. I wonder if by foregrounding this uh, theme of persona, do you feel like that's more honest in a way? Like when we're talking about truth um, to sort of expose like the slippery slope of what really is truth and putting that forward? Yeah. Or maybe this idea that like no matter who you think you are, you really are just one self, you know, or like that there's all these um, different vantage points you can have and all these different parts of yourself, but that ultimately it's me writing the book. And I kind of accept that, you know, of just like, putting my name on the front and this idea of like tonight I'm someone else, but then the disappointment that you actually aren't like, you're always just yourself. (laughs) So, so would that put you in the camp or, or in a different camp from Eileen miles who would say that, um, or at least in our conversation, she was talking about, uh, identity really just being the accumulation or layering of gestures. Mm. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way. Um, I think, I think that I, in writing the book, I've kind of more fully formed my idea or my notion of these like different aspects of the self. And, um, for me, it's like, I can look at certain essays and actually not recognize myself in them. And there's something really mysterious about that to me where it's almost as if someone else lived them. Um, but I think ultimately it comes back to a kind of almost existential sadness of like, it's me. (laughs) It's always me. And there's no escaping that. And I think that's part of like the human condition. And that's why I'm interested in reading people's documents of their own lives. You know, like I, I love novels, I love poetry, but I think I wanted to write this kind of book for that reason. Hmm. Well, I do think one of the compelling aspects of the book is watching you perform your life, like creating art, as you make these choices or allow others to make choices for you. And part of why I think it's compelling is that the avatar for you in the book seems to almost court mistakes, to court life's mistakes as if they're not only the most interesting moments, um, but maybe the most important mm-hmm. moments. Um, and this this persona across essays also does not feel like she's full of regrets Um, she doesn't lament, um, there's not a lot of rumination Mm -hmm. that happens after an action. And I guess I wanted to just ask first, um, with this issue of persona and truth, whatever that is, do you think we would recognize this in you? Um, if we were your friend down the hall, um, 
a woman who relishes in her mistakes without regrets? Or is this sort of an on-the-page intensification or performance of something that may be somewhat real but um, Mm -hmm. has a lot of countervailing aspects to it? Yeah. It's interesting that you're framing it as like someone that knows me or what did you say lives down Down the the hall? hall. Because I think that that person wouldn't recognize it because I'm so private. So I find writing a space to express this kind of thing and and ruminate somewhat, even though I don't do it for extended pages at a time or extended periods of time, I think. Um, but I'm someone that I think um, studying stoicism for a little bit, like just reading certain uh, books by Seneca or Marcus Aurelius have really helped me put the events of my life into um, some sense of order and that um, an, ex- an acceptance of like, I, I actually don't, um, you know, I don't stay up at night thinking like, oh gosh, I wish I wouldn't, I would never have done that. Um, so of course I have regrets of my life, but it's not something that consumes me. And um, by writing about them, I think I'm able to make more sense of them. And there's a line in my book where it's like, I think mistakes are imprinted in our DNA. It's only a matter of time before we make them. So that's something that I believe. I think certain people are drawn to certain things. And um, so I believe that maybe by being drawn to certain situations and having the courage to act in them, whether it's right or wrong, that that in a way has canceled that out for me, that then I no longer have to engage in that behavior, like that it's something that I had to go through. But if I can see it that way, then I don't really have a sadness about it. Hmm. It's more of like, I'm at peace with it and I accept it as part of my life. So is there something particular about the Stoics that, uh, that gives you this sense? Of just, um, accepting, just basically accepting one's life, um, and not thinking that one deserves more than someone else. Like for instance, more happiness. Mm -hmm. I'm not someone that wishes like, Oh, I just, I wish I were so happy. Like, I don't really believe in that. So I think that's something that they taught me of like, no matter how much money you have or how much quote happiness you have, ultimately you're still stuck with yourself essentially. And that's not, um, that doesn't have to be torture. It's just something, it's just how we live, I think. Yeah. So I think in reading that and realizing that they're 2000 year old texts, there's something that I just thought, okay, well, that's just how humans are, no matter what the politics are, what the technology is like. It's like I, I see myself in those texts, and I think that informed a lot for me. So, so you've talked about your aim in the essay is to portray more than to reflect, mm-hmm. um, that you cross out phrases that you are, where you are looking back at something you've done because you want to preserve the heat of the event themselves. So I was hoping you could unpack that a little. What, yeah. what are you hoping to achieve with that? And, and what does um, having the reflection and their looking back and the rumination in the text itself do that you don't like? Yeah, I think it's just a balance because I think there are certain moments that demand it where I do engage in it. Like, you know, thinking, I, I forget kind of the phrases that I use, but I'm, in that quote you're talking about, I'm referencing like, I do often quote, or um, I do often cross out things like looking back now, or like, I remember then. Um, 
I'm just kind of I'm interested in playing with the prose in a way that makes it have more heat, makes it feel closer to the reader. And I think there's an inevitable distance that comes up when you can sense the writer there in the safe place looking back. I'm more interested in like the moment when things are totally uncertain and unsafe and kind of chaotic. And having the overlay of the retrospective voice, I would imagine, would make it feel a lot safer yeah, as you portray I it. I think so. So I do have moments that are like that that require it, where... Um, you know, there's parts of my life that I wanted to write about, but I don't remember. So there's a, a part in one of the essays where I just list, I don't remember blank, I don't remember blank, I don't remember blank. And that's obviously written from a vantage point in which the event is very far away. So I think there's a way to combine both that's maybe satisfying for the reader. But I'm not really interested in writing a whole like 300 page memoir from my vantage point now where I'm looking back at my life. Mm -hmm. I like to kind of play with the words and the tenses to make it feel um, like I'm still in that moment because that helped me write it and helped me remember things. So it's basically a writing technique for me as well. Hmm. Could we hear near miss? Oh yeah, sure. Near miss. And it starts with a quote by Roland Barthes. A Lover's Discourse, which says, Waiting is an enchantment. I have received orders not to move. Do you want to play? Sam asked, using a jump rope to tie a butcher knife to his ceiling fan. His invented game had a name I no longer recall. But I looked at Julian, sitting on the couch, then back at Sam, standing barefoot on his coffee table, and I said, Sure. It seemed like the type of thing that might occur more naturally at night, after a few drinks. But this was a Saturday afternoon, and the three of us hadn't even had coffee yet. Sam's house was alongside a dirt road in Tucson, near the University of Arizona, where I hoped to study journalism. I'd seen Sam sing at a basement show a few months prior, and had fallen in love with the drummer, Julian, but called him something less suspicious, my friend. I'd borrowed my mother's minivan to drive the two hours from Phoenix to spend the day with them. Sam tightened the knot around the butcher knife's handle as I took my seat next to Julian on the couch. Are you ready? Sam asked, and I said no, but he pulled the fan's metal chain and rushed to his seat. Keep your hands on the couch, he said. That's the rule. Arms at our sides, we watched as the knife picked up speed and the rope became stiff, pointing at us like an accusation. I averted my gaze from the knife to Julian, and for a moment, I thought he might look back. The knife seemed like a kind of placeholder an object standing in for the badness of the world, which had not yet reached us, not all the way. We brought it closer. Schopenhauer wrote, The scenes of our life resemble pictures in rough mosaic. They are ineffective from close-up, and have to be viewed from a distance if they are to seem beautiful. He argued that attaining a goal was beside the point, it's the ad interim which makes up our lives, that time leading up to the thing we thought we wanted. 
The summer in between high school and college seemed disposable, and I woke up each day ready to waste it. I regarded college as the moment my life would finally begin. I wasn't ready. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't in love enough. But time slowed as the knife made lap after lap, pointed toward our foreheads. Julian had said we should make it the best summer ever, and maybe this was that. I couldn't tell. I expected Julian to love me back. I expected to acquire him, as in the object of my affection, a phrase I've always hated for its implication of ownership. It's a lie designed to give hope. Someday, perhaps I would hold him in my hands and keep him forever. However, never having him might have been just as useful. Schopenhauer, to attain something desired is to discover how vain it is. I hoped for the end result, even though I couldn't define it, because I thought it was the only important thing. I'd been taught that all those days, before I got what I wanted, were hours to be hurried, not valued. We weren't sure how tightly the rope held the knife, if it would slip, when. I think it glittered each time it passed the sun in the window, but perhaps it only glitters now when I try to see it again. Laughter, destruction, injury, love, listing them here, they appear distinct, as separate entities but that's not right. The time in which we waited, that was the great equalizer, in which one consequence replaced another. Anything could happen, so, for a moment, everything did. Then the fan's blades turned at top speed, and the knife slipped and darted toward my love, I mean, my friend, and missed him by a few inches, stabbed the couch cushion instead. We gasped, said, oh my God, and covered our mouths with our hands. We couldn't stop laughing at how close we'd been. I ached for so many things then. I thought I could still feel my bones growing some nights, the way I did when I was a child. I longed for the future, as if it would arrive in a clearly labeled box just for me as if I could open it in midair as it hurled itself toward my shoulder. I failed to value its obscurity then, and I'm still failing, even now. The inevitability of the knife simplified everything. Each anatomy was available to ruin. Each law was breakable. That's what made the world so beautiful, so seemingly new within its impossible history. I forgot that sometimes. We've been listening to Chelsea Hodson read from her essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else. So this willingness to, to drift toward bad decisions or dangerous decisions, it's, it seems to manifest in, in the essay collection as a sort of dislocation of self or an absenting from self and the concerns of self. And a, and a disappearance into the flow of a situation being carried by the strength of someone else's agenda. Yeah. Um, at various points in the book, you say things like, I love to be convinced, to be guided into feeling exactly what the speaker wants me to feel. 
And in, in interviews, you've talked about how you wanted to explore why you felt drawn to certain situations, which involved giving up all your power, intellectual power, physical power, and sexual power. And I, I wanted to bring Marina Abramovich into the conversation, not only because of your relationship to her work, but because of some of the thematic resonances. And I was hoping we could start with um, you describe, describing Rhythm Zero for people, um, her most famous piece, I think, from the 70s. Yes. Um, um, could, could you tell people who don't know um, what this performance art piece was, what happened? Yes, there's a series of objects laid on the table. And then for six hours, she, um, in her performance proposal, she stated, I am the object. I take full responsibility, I think. So, um, I mean, I think because I'm paraphrasing, but she accepted the role of the audience in the performance in that all the objects, including a loaded gun, were on the table and she was willing to do whatever, including die, I believe, you know, because people literally had a loaded gun up to her neck at one point and she didn't move. I mean, she was totally committed to this idea of um, an experiment almost. That's what I really like about her work is that you never really know what's going to happen because it involves other people. And um, through that, it has this sense of danger and um, submission on her part where she submits to the idea that anything could happen. So, so her phrase, I am the object during this period, I take full responsibility. And then in in your piece, Pity the Animal, you, you speak about Abramovich and say, taking responsibility is another way of forgiving someone else for their possible actions. Marina doesn't have responsibility. She takes it before reducing herself to a body. And that's really interesting, this emphasis on the word take, that there's this this act of agency yeah. towards um, objectifying oneself mm-hmm. and seeing what evolves out of that. Yeah. Um, It was fascinating to me because partially because she's sort of forgiving the audience in advance, um, taking the responsibility, dislocating her own like self narrative from her body. And then people cut her clothes, people stick thorns in her, people aim a gun at her head. But one of the things that is remarkable is that her final act is sort of the exact opposite of of the whole piece, which mm-hmm. is her stepping forward. Mm-hmm. So after these six hours of being an object, she steps, she simply walks toward the audience and yeah. everyone runs away as yeah. if there's like some sort of uh, re- restoration of responsibility yeah. just by her moving. And, and the uh, confrontation of coming toward them, right? You know, yeah. like, I mean, that's without like that's all that she needed to do. Right. Was to, to act. Yeah. To to and then essentially they're running from um what they've projected on her that's really theirs. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me sort of this, I mean the whole idea of the scapegoat comes from a Yom Kippur ritual and 2000 years ago when you right. would place the yeah. sins of the community on a goat and then chase it out into the desert. Right. But it would be what would happen if the goat ran back into the city. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And I think um there's such a power in her not saying anything at that point. It's like, it's not like she was like, no, stop. Like that would actually be much weaker or uh, gentler almost than just silently stepping forward. And it's that kind of simplicity that I try to enact in my writing with like a small gesture or something that means a lot more than 
you might think or then like a really violent action or really dramatic scene would enact. It's really like one hand touching another hand is to me like really just has so much power. And so it's that kind of um, simplicity that I think in observing her work has really helped me in my writing of just thinking about the physicality um, of one body and like what that what that means and what that power holds. Well, and you're also playing with this idea of becoming seemingly passive and empty and blank and objectified and yet doing so with agency as a way to mirror something. Yeah. Uh, at least it feels that way to me. And I, I um, thinking about the different ways of the objectification and commodification of the body, particularly the female body, shows up in this collection. Um, your examination of your work as a model uh, working at American Apparel, where they wanted you to sell clothes in a bikini, um, and then your f- flirtation with a site called Seeking Arrangements. Yeah. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about Seeking Arrangements, how you see it in relationship to the other ways you you were going with the flow of what society expects. Yeah. For for what society wants a woman to perform, and then maybe speak a little more about. Do you feel like as you explore this? Um, the ways in which you, if you do, you step in f- toward the audience in an essay, the way she steps towards the audience at the end of her piece. Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I think the first thing that comes to mind of stepping toward the audience is like kind of making sense of something that seemed confusing or even taboo to myself. So this act of like confessing, um, which is what happened in Pity the Animal, which is the first essay in the book that I wrote because it was released earlier. Um, and then I decided to include it in this collection. And that came as um, a desire to find the distinction between a human, an animal, and an object. I started to, I think through viewing Marina Abramovich's um, piece, The Artist is Present, in which she just sat in a room at MoMA um, gazing at someone for eight hours a day, like the visitors could cycle through. And so the piece was just her in a room. Um, I was very curious about this. And so I went to see it, um, very skeptical about it. I wasn't like, this is going to change my life. I'm going to go see it. I was like, what is this about? And I never heard of her when I went there. And, um, I just, I felt the, the presence of her and the intensity of the action was generating its own energy in the room. And, um, that and essentially it's a not doing that's yes. generating this energy. Well, the doing is simply unwavering eye contact. That really fascinated me. And it scared me so much that I write in the book about that I couldn't, I had my chance to like st- stand in line, sit in front of her, and I actually didn't want to engage, which is, I think, very true to my personality. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm really drawn to these people that engage or that challenge things. And I'm, I'm someone that, I'm someone that, is usually content watching someone else do something. (laughs) So, um, in that I'm interested in, um, I, so I think that's where seeking arrangement comes into play of like, I was interested in it as almost a performance. Well, can you tell people what it is? Sure. Yeah. So seeking arrangement as I write in the book is about, is a site that where, you can have a profile as a sugar daddy or a sugar baby, which means as a, as a woman, you would be this young, attractive woman. And then you list a price that would be like your rate to be 
the girlfriend or to be the per- the woman in the rich, usually older gentleman's life. So you kind of use this site to work around this taboo idea and you just accept that everyone on the site is down with this exchange and um, the site you know, advertises itself as having mutually beneficial arrangements. So um, the guy gets what he wants, the girl gets what she wants, and usually, from what I understand, sex is involved, but it's not even, it's not automatic. That's not the only thing. So I write in the book that it's somewhat of a loophole for prostitution, it seems, because it's, it presents itself as being more dignified, like that it's, it's civilized. Um, and yet the rules seem pretty much the same to me, but there were also people on the site that genuinely didn't seem to want that. It was more of either like a power exchange or, um, something about like appearing with a younger woman. Like there's, there was all kinds of different people on the site, but so I was on the site and I flirted with the idea of it and had a lot of conversations with people about it because I was really broke. And, um, for some reason this idea excited me. So I, I, um, I was getting by, I wasn't like so desperate that I was doing it, but there was something else in my psyche that was drawing me to kind of flirt with this idea of almost danger of, um, cause it seemed, it did seem dangerous to me of, um, like putting yourself in a position as a woman where you are, accepting the idea of yourself as an object that can be bought. So there's something that was terrifying about that to me. And I think in that terror, I found it really exciting and I was drawn to it. Um, and, uh, but I think there's something in me that held back because I wasn't, I don't know. I think for me to do it, it would have been really self-destructive for me. It wasn't actually what I wanted, but I think the idea of it was appealing to me. And so I was, excited by it but I just it ended up being something that I could use for my art (laughs) and that's and that ended up being all that it needed to be I never went back on the site and um it's something that I only wrote about years later so once I started engaging with art that kind of reminded me of that part of myself of like what one woman's body can do that really kind of brought back to me that moment in my life where I was drawn to this certain site and arrangement. And um, by putting those things together, I found that really satisfying. Well, it reminds me of, there's a moment in the book when you're contemplating a Frida Kahlo painting. Yeah. Um, it's, a pa- it's a famous painting where she depicts herself as a deer that's been impaled by arrows. But instead of imagining her expression as saying, look what you've done to me, which I think was probably the more common way people would interpret it. Mm -hmm. You imagine the look on her face is saying, I put myself in the way of danger. Now I have these souvenir souvenirs instead of my life. And this, this coupling of passivity and agency. And also I think importantly, and a refusal of of victimhood, Mm -hmm. uh, runs through this collection, I think. Um, and that tension is unsettling in an interesting way. And it makes me makes me think about some of the debates in the Me Too movement around consent. Um, In particular, there's one moment in in the collection that I would love to unpack a little bit. And and, in one essay, you say, though he did force himself on me, the truth is I stayed at the party waiting for something to happen. Everyone at the party left, and still nothing had happened. He wasn't a stranger. I knew he was a bad man. 
I'd known that for a long time. That's why I stayed. I was hoping we could talk about that scene sure. a little bit because it both resonates with much of what we've already talked about. And it sort of gets us to this locus of like, it, uh, I think intensity around, um, a lot of the questions that are happening in the culture right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that part in particular, um, I wanted to write about because I, I think in that moment in, in particular, I identified this part of myself that was extremely self-destructive and this kind of like Freudian death drive in myself that led me to a very specific house that I knew something bad would happen in. So I had had like a very bad night and instead of like doing drugs or doing so, like I think people have a series of, you know, self-destructive behaviors that they can choose to engage in. And for me, I chose to stay at the party in a place that I pretty much knew was unsafe. And so in that, I don't really see myself as a victim. I see myself and I don't feel forever traumatized by what happened there, actually. So I accept that it was not pleasant and um, it wasn't a great <laughs> moment, but that um, I can keep living and I can make sense of that part of my life and accept, I mean, because th that essay that you, that it, um, that it appears in Pity the Animal is about responsibility um, in a lot of ways. And so I think that anecdote in particular it really scared me of how much responsibility I had in that moment, I think. So I think you can play that many different ways because sex and desire and things like that are so complicated that I can choose to think about that situation any way I want. And that's the way that I interpret it of mm -hmm. like, I actually see it as me understanding a part of myself that I didn't know was there. And um, in understanding it, I can maybe reckon with it. Whereas before it was just this wild burst of energy that I felt compelled by, you know, like almost something that I had to follow. Yeah. And I think in understanding and writing about these moments, I no longer have to follow them, maybe. Well, in, in another point in an interview, talking about this same moment, you said, um, I think there's a tendency now to want to label everything. But I always think about the Graham Greene quote, when we are not sure we are alive. The ambiguities and complications revolving around desire are more, are more interesting to me, and I don't think naming something necessarily solves the emotional problem of it. I'm content to let that scene speak for itself. So I was wondering if you feel like when it comes to literature versus politics, yeah. that the labeling of it not only doesn't solve the emotional problem of it, but does it, does it actually obscure the problem of it? Well, and I should say, I think naming things for other people has really helped them emotionally. And I respect that. But for me, um, it doesn't. And so in that question, I remember very clearly she was asking me to identify that scene as sexual assault. And I think for other people, that would help them understand it. And for me, it just doesn't. So it, it actually just doesn't interest me. It's more interesting to me of like tracking my movement from one to the next and his movement and how I led myself to the situation. Um, and have you seen the movie L the Paul Verhoeven film with Isabelle Huppert? No, I haven't actually. I think someone recommended this to me recently, but I haven't seen it. Well, I'm, I'm just gonna, 
Sure. I want to just bring it in. I know you haven't seen it. I'm, I'm sad a little bit that you haven't seen Sorry. it. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry to sadden you. Yeah. Uh, but um, in one sense, this movie was really thrilling to me because I, I left and I couldn't orient myself morally to the narrative. But on the other hand, I felt sort of ethic because I felt sort of ethically unmoored. I, I wasn't sure whether I witnessed something um, truly rotten, maybe yeah. even evil yeah, um, or something really brilliant. And so I spent a lot of uh, the next week or two reading a lot about the movie. Mm. And um, it's a movie where the main character is raped by a masked intruder, uh, but then is complicit in her future rapes by the same man. Mm. And I wasn't surprised to find reviews that um, by smart people that called the movie sick uh, and sort of like a highbrow rape apologist film and also saying that no woman would ever act like this in reality mm -hmm. after a, a, as a sexual violence survivor. But what complicated the picture for me uh, was a panel of women that were talking about the movie at the New Inquiry. And they were three uh, feminist film scholars, and they all loved the movie, um, and they're much smarter than me. So I'm just going to quote them okay. um, with, with half knowledge of what they're saying. But um, Cassie DaCosta says the following, Michelle refuses the idea that there's any correct way for a rape survivor to conduct herself while also avoiding the language that many survivors use to talk about rape. A tricky thing happens in L. The rape, although it is the first and defining event in the entire film, constitutes no part of Michelle's identity. She doesn't work within or beyond the title of rape survivor. It often seems like she never even thinks of it. Her actions are practical and methodical even when they are not lawful or rational. We're not expected to prize her perfect victimhood over her messy survival. And then Hannah Gold points out that the female protagonist gets the vast majority of the story's words, and, and she's given enough power to rip the mask from her assailant's face, and that without the mask, her life goes on, but his doesn't go on. And finally, Anna Schechtman says, Michelle becomes what Lacan called the phallic mother, a woman terrifying to men because she has no lack, no need she cannot fulfill herself, no desire that she cannot self-satisfy, all of this puts the agency, the wholeness, and integrity, and the power with the woman who would normally be labeled a woman who has been raped, a victim, a trauma victim, someone acted upon. And I, I don't want to overstate the connection, but it feels like, in a way, you're working in similar field as at least what these thinkers are thinking about this movie, rightly or wrongly, uh, stepping into this arena where women are exploited objects, but then somehow... Uh, flipping the narrative. And I, I wondered if yeah. any of what these people said, and this doesn't have to be about the movie, obviously, because you haven't seen it, but yeah. does this, any of this resonate with you in some of what you're exploring? Yeah. It's really interesting to me and I'll definitely have to see the movie and I'll probably read about it. And to the extent that you have to, um, I think it's really terrifying for people to, um, see a reaction to something that they don't expect like they don't expect um I think a woman to not be traumatized by something that severe and so it's actually instead of being uh empowering or inspiring to watch it's actually terrifying because culturally we're expected or we're trained to expect a certain reaction so if something quote traumatic happens then of course the victim 
is, and then even like that language, like they're automatically a victim. Um, uh, you know, they have to react a certain way or else that's actually terrifying because if they are that powerful, then what does that mean? Like what is, if they choose to, to reject that, um, the main expected reaction, then what else can they do? Like, I think that's maybe what is scary about a a complication like that. And I think that that's why that interviewer that you mentioned was trying to get me to label it. Like, I don't know how to make sense of this without you calling it sexual assault. Like, why don't you just call it that? Um, And my answer is like, because I, by writing the scene, I made sense of it. That's like, that's all I'm interested in doing. And um, I, I like it when other writers can engage in those kind of complications. And so I try to, I try to not oversimplify if I don't need to. Um, and so I like kind of subverting those expectations and, um, working through things in a way that makes sense to me. And, and that idea that you talk about of what else could this woman do if, if she's not, if she doesn't seem either, uh, affected by it or defined by it that yeah. reminds me of the marina yeah. abramovich piece that we yeah. talk about rhythm zero like all these things happen to her and then simply by stepping forward whole as a human yeah what that, else can she do right yeah and people run from what that from yeah. they don't want to know yeah imagine continuing to make art for 30 40 years after a performance like that which she did I mean, like that was a performance that that could have killed her easily. Um, and instead of running from that, she chooses to say, like, that was part of my life and uh, on to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to stay just for a moment longer in the yeah. in this question around me, too, in relationship to language, um, because it remind this question also reminds me of some of the writings by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker and then also some of the writings of Miriam Gerba, both queer sexual assault survivors. Yeah. Um, and both sort of pushing for like a different narrative within the Me Too movement, supporters of yeah. the movement, but I think um, women who complicate the narrative. Um, Masha Gessen talks about a split historically in feminism between a less audible and less visible sexual liberationist wing and a more dominant uh, wing that is highly, even militantly suspicious of sex and sort of wants to defang sex of all, uh, all questions of power. And she says, uh, in the current American conversation, women are increasingly treated as children, defenseless, incapable of consent, always on the verge of being victimized. This should give us pause. Being infantilized has never worked out well for women. And then the the writer Miriam Gerba uh, said something I found interesting about why she uses humor when writing about being raped. And she says, our storytelling habits matter. And I've listened with care and concern as a certain pattern of storytelling has come into vogue. This style saturates stories of sexual assault and violence with piety, banishing irreverence from the narrative. Stories of this sort have formed their own canon and developed their own script. According to it, experiencing sexual violence is the worst moment in a survivor's life, period. It centers violation as a baptismal experience that defines one's person and in many ways all womanhood. Because such experiences are so exceptionally horrific, the tools we use to discuss the everyday, the language we use to talk about human events, fail us. 
We raid the vocabulary of religion in order to confer solemnity. We quote-unquote witness a victim's pain as they quote-unquote testify. I take exception to this sort of rape exceptionalism. So I don't even know if there's a question here other than that I feel like you might be a kindred spirit to some of these sentiments um, around complicating the narrative while also potentially being part of the movement. Um, but I wondered if you felt any uh, trepidation writing about a woman this way, a woman who willfully becomes an object or is, is portraying herself drawn to violence and how you then situate yourself in the cultural moment. Yeah. Um, I did have a lot of fear. Yeah. Um, in writing Pity the Animal, which I mentioned is the first essay I wrote in the book, I had the privilege of publishing it for a limited edition print run. And being involved in the literary community and the small press community, I genuinely didn't think that many people would read it. So I had a really great comfort in this idea that, um, yeah, I w- you know, I'm confronting something that's scary to me that doesn't you know, that I've made sense of by writing about, but still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I'm still like working through it. This, you know, this was four years ago. Um, I was thinking this way and thinking, but stakes are pretty low. I feel like my friends will read it and um, maybe some related people that follow me on Twitter would read it and that it wouldn't make that big of an impact. So that it sounds like self-defeating, but it was actually really freeing to me. I was excited by that. I thought, okay, well, this is the first printed thing that I'll do. And, you know, I'm working on this book, but I feel like I'm years away from it. I really think this is the strongest thing I'm writing right now, and I'd like to publish it. So I just felt at ease with it, but nobody read it until I turned it into Kevin Samsel, the editor. And um, so I really had no idea. I didn't have any, like, early readers of it. And, um, I felt at ease with it. Weirdly, as soon as it was done, it was the first thing I wrote that felt complete to me. And Mm -hmm. I, indeed, I haven't edited it for this book. It's in the same form it was four years ago. And, um, then it had a larger audience than I anticipated. It was turned into an ebook. And, um, instead of, uh, having any negative reaction, it was mainly women writing to me, saying they saw themselves in it. So I think that gave me the courage to keep writing in this realm. Uh, I think it would have been really hard for me. I would have kept writing in this realm, I think, but it would have been much harder if I hadn't had that first experience that seemed really low stakes to me. And then as a pleasant surprise, it had a larger readership than I thought it would and that it was mostly positive. It was mostly people saying, I see myself in this or like this made me think about something in a new way. Um, And I think that's the goal of every writer, you know, to like complicate something or to introduce a new perspective to it. So if I thought I thought, well, if that is resonating with this small group of people, then, um, you know, I think that I was clear enough. I think that's that was my main fear was that I wasn't being clear. And people, I think understood the complication of the argument and um and accepted that resistance to categorize Hmm. of um i think it's like i said i think it's very scary to go out of that box of like declaring something this or that and to say maybe it's both maybe it's 10 different things like what now what do i do with myself if like that's the case 
Um, and I think those writers you mentioned are, in, are maybe interested in that complication as well. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Chelsea Hodson about her essay collection. Tonight, I'm someone else. I want to unpack the Maggie Nelson description of you as as wild and chiseled, which seems like a a perfect description. This tension between something highly crafted and also chaotic, um, it feels like both something that could describe your aesthetics and describe some of the themes of the book. Uh, For instance, you talk about loving your mistakes more than your life but also wanting to make life into art, into something shapely. So these feel like they're sort of at odds. Um, And you teach a class on concision and precision, but you also teach a class on experimentation, on using elements of fiction and poetry and nonfiction. And uh, you are a meticulous organizer of things in your house, someone who wants things to be tidy and perfect, and yet you love it when someone else chooses where you sit in a movie theater, uh, chooses what to order in a restaurant. Uh, so I wanted to hear more about the ways abandon and control uh, inform the way you write and and possibly also the way you teach writing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm someone that really needs a system of organization to live. So I feel I feel almost like that I feel everything a little too much sometimes. (laughs) Like, I just feel like it's too much. So, and I also don't have strong preferences about things like food or where I sit in a movie theater. So I genuinely don't have a preference of like what I order on a menu, for instance. Like, I feel strongly that I won't like it any more than anything else on the menu. Mm. Like, I just kind of, I accept certain things like that where um, it's like a real gift for me to have someone I trust be like, you know what I like, just, you know, help me decide which entree to order something silly like that and that little things like that um, make their way into my writing where I'll have the system of almost arbitrary decisions that then begin to inform what I'm writing so I talked a little bit about titles you know I'll have a idea on the train for a title and I'll write it down and then I'll write what I'll write 2,000 words of what I think that an essay with that title would look like um so an arbitrary decision then be, starts a whole new piece and then the piece becomes about something else in, in the process of writing it. Then I change the title, begin to edit the piece and it becomes something totally new. So it's like by giving myself, uh, you know, an overview or just a structure to work within, um, because I'll also choose things like that, like, okay, this essay will be numbered or each paragraph will have four sentences. That's it. Um, I have to kind of assign order to something in order to make the disorder of my life and my memories have some cohesion and some cleanliness to them that I think is like satisfying to both me as a writer and then hopefully to a reader. So I, in my teaching, I do that as well. I will encourage my students to come up with some sort of rule for themselves if they feel lost and by their own writing of just, um, that it's too much or that they don't know where to start their story. Um, I do an exercise where I'll have like a prose poem and listed out um, on the, you know, left aligned is the first two words of each sentence. So then you you read one poem and then you take the first two to three words of that poem and you write, you just fill in the rest of that sentence. Hmm. So it's almost like filling in the blank, but 
I also will apply a time restraint to that. So it's like, I just always, so it's like, okay, everyone in the class, you have one minute to finish this sentence that starts with he was what. (laughs) And um, by the end, it's like, by just giving yourself that burst of, and the freedom of just like, whatever I write in this one minute, that's it. Usually something interesting happens out of that. So um, that's how I use it in my writing and in my life of just like, certain things are very controlled, certain things are very messy. Well, you've talked about how with students of yours of nonfiction that you have them read in other genres, so Mm -hmm. poetry and fiction, to help inspire more wildness in in their writing. So how how does, can you elaborate a little on how you feel like a nonfiction writer would uh, invite wildness by reading in the other genres? Yeah, for instance, I think a lot of nonfiction students um, I encounter forget about images often. Like it's, it, I think so often we emphasize the arc of a nonfiction writer or like the vantage point of when they started versus the vantage point of them changed at the end. Like I think that's the kind of formula that a lot of people expect of an essay or a memoir. And um, I think in focusing too too closely on that, a lot of the evocative language or images that you would find in a poem, like that a poem couldn't live without, um, I think can begin to inform the Mm. essay much more. And that seems pretty straightforward, but that seems to be something that I find nonfiction students forget about is like the atmosphere of something that would definitely be in the beginning of a novel, for instance, or like towards the beginning of a novel, I think. Um, This kind of cinematic quality, I think will always help nonfiction, no matter what you're writing about. Well, you, you've also talked about sometimes using composites of people in essays, uh, that instead of slowing down to describe multiple people, you sometimes will refer to them as one person in, in you, in the in the second person. Is that an example of importing like fictional techniques into nonfiction? Like I think back to this idea at the beginning of our conversation about persona and truthfulness. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not technically it's not accurate but maybe it's accurate to something else right I think of it as like a dance around that like it's not untruthful but I think by generalizing it like so I'm thinking of in um artist statement I think there's a few of those so it's not a linear sorry the essay artist statement in my book um the there's a you character and when I direct it to the you, it's more of like a type of person. Sometimes it's a specific person. But to me, the truth of the essay doesn't rely on whether or not that's a real person or not. It's like the speaker um, addressing another person and perhaps even the reader. Yeah. So again, it plays into this uncertainty that I think is fair game for what I'm writing, um, but isn't like this person lived in Arizona and had blonde hair and blue eyes. Like right. it just doesn't, I don't think certain parts in my book require that kind of specificity and therefore that's when I could use a composite but anyone that's like named like I'm still using the constraints of nonfiction. yeah so I like that idea of kind of changing back and forth yeah so so much of the books in in modular form uh, with paragraphs with white space between them and depending on the essay might move more narratively or more associatively with more gaps and leaps between the paragraphs and I read that once you had a draft that you would actually cut out the paragraphs separate from each other and look for less obvious connections by rearranging the frag the literal fragments yeah. by cutting up the pages 
um, rearranging the placement of the fragments. Um, was this how this book was put together? Yes, most of them. Some of the shorter essays came out in kind of like a couple sittings, and then I would edit the sentences, but I wouldn't change the structure. But the ones that have the white space in between them, almost all of them were rearranged and cut up manually and physically. So there's this visual and tactile uh, aspect to the um, putting the composition. Yeah, there's something to me that um, in my brain I can't properly think about the essay as a whole unless I can see it all in front of me. So it's some like disconnect I have with it living on my computer. At at a certain point, I just can't live with that. And I have to print it out and touch it and see it. And um, that has helped me kind of see where the best ending could be or the best place to begin and then begin to see certain themes that I otherwise wasn't detecting when it was just living on my hard drive. Mm-hmm. Just seems I like technology a lot, but it um, at a certain point it begins to hinder me. It's like my brain can't match up with the computer, and so I have to kind of bring it back to where I can actually touch it. Yeah. So I think that's part of why I choose to write in this form for this book of these, um, like you know. 20, 30 pages or less, something that I can actually rearrange on my small bedroom floor, you know, like Mm -hmm. something that can still make sense to me and that I can manage. Well, you've talked before about coming up with tricks to get over your fear of writing. Um, And I was thinking about your your web project inventory, where you catalog everything you owned and posed with each object a day at a time for over 600 days. And I wondered if the artifice and constraint of this project was one of those moments or not, or durational moments of getting over the fear of a regular writing practice. Definitely. And it goes back to what I was saying about Pity the Animal, where I felt freed by my lack of audience. I had like seven or eight Twitter or um, Tumblr followers when I started my Tumblr project inventory. And um, so I just thought, well, there's this idea of an audience and there's a record of me posting it every day. So I liked the idea that I was being held accountable, even if no one was really watching, like a few people were watching. And then as the project continued, it did get a a larger following. And, um, so that worked in that regard of like, I felt bound to the project of like, I set out to do this thing. I'm not going to quit doing it. Like I'm going to just keep doing a, a photo and a paragraph each day. So some days I would think that I would do it in the morning and then I'd be doing it from my phone out at night because I just didn't get back home that day or, um, but no matter what, I was always posting something. So some of them are one sentence, some of them are better than others. (laughs) And the constraint was just like, I can only edit it that day. It's only, it's just a document of the object and then something from that day. So it um, it just became alive in a certain sense in that way and began to inform the um, DSA Pity the Animal later because it, I was thinking so much about objects that I think it just one thing led into the other, hmm. which seems to be how I write, just one interest and in, begins to inform the next. Well, to return back to t- tonight I'm someone else um, and this tension between the tidy and the controlled and the wild and even the destructive uh, the themes that reoccur, it, the the epigraph really um, evokes a lot of this, and I was hoping you'd read it and then yeah, and then sure. maybe tell us a little bit about how it ended up being chosen and why. Yeah, 
It's um, from the book Auto Portrait by Edward LeVay. As the surgeon's scalpel reveals my organs, love introduces other versions of myself whose obscene novelty disgusts me. And um, to me, it's a great opening. Thank you. To me, it's very sad, but it also makes me laugh every time I read it. It's so severe (laughs) that it's like, I know he's being serious, but like the idea that novelty can be obscene is really amazing to me. And that it physically disgusts him to think about the ways in which love has essentially changed him. Hmm. Um, I encountered this as I was using this book as inspiration for something else I was writing. So I was using these kinds of constraints that we're talking about of, I was using words from his sentences to create my own. And, um, so I was reading this book really closely and, um, I encountered this uh, in the later stages of my book and I just thought that has to open it. Like that's everything of just, because it's, it has a, it has a literal image of like a surgeon's surgeon's scalpel revealing organs and then comparing it to love and how it guts him, you know, like I just. Could you read it one more time? Yeah. As the surgeon's scalpel reveals my organs, love introduces other versions of myself whose obscene novelty disgusts me. Edward LeVay, Autoportrait. So I wanted to uh, maybe jump from here to an essay. I'm going to paraphrase what a guy says in one of the essays. So correct me if I'm, I'm sure, missing ahead. the meaning. But <laughs> he says basically that he knew you were a slut because you had your top button of your shirt or blouse yeah. buttoned up. So like the fact that everything was contrary to this epigraph with the scalpel cutting open the body. Yeah. It was this feeling of the um, utter precision and tidiness of, and the uh, square, maybe even the squareness of the way you were using your buttons that revealed Mm -hmm. um, your organs. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. But it also is like this paradox of around the wild and the precise, which we've obviously been talking about Mm -hmm. around your teaching, but also feels like, um, rather than being a, a, um, attention, it almost feels like the tidy and the precise becomes the symbol of the wild. Right. Exactly. In this case. And that's kind of what that moment is, rep- is meant to represent. You know, it, it, it comes across as serious, but to me it was very funny of like, um, you know, because it wasn't said totally seriously. It was just like, I knew you were a slut, you know, like it wasn't meant to be, uh, even like mean or derogatory. Um, and, um, to me it was just, it was like him saying like, I see you who, for who you are, like not anything to do with sexually, but like, I see something beyond what you're showing the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, so even though I don't really expand on that in the text, that to me is what that part represents. And it's this moment of someone even if that's not true, like this person thinks that they know me and um, it's said in this like confrontational way. And it just that was that's what made me remember it of like that I can portray myself in a certain way. And that maybe if that is in a tidy, controlled way, that there's this, you know, this chaos that reigns within and that someone who identifies with that also sees it, you know, like that they relate yeah. to that and they can identify it. Well, talk to us a little more about this recurring theme of the human versus the animal and the id 
mm-hmm. versus the ego, since mm-hmm. it appears in multiple titles too yeah. in in the collection. So what what's going on there in your brain around yeah. the, the id and the animal and and the human? It's basically a campaign to argue that like I don't think we're that different, and I'm like obsessed with that idea of like this, um, you know, thousands of years ago, us, you know, like hunting and just living in a different way, I feel like that part of us is still within us. And so that's this like tension that builds in trying to um, be in a civilized world and a political world. And like, how do we make sense of these instincts that are still inside of us and are very animal? So I think that's something that I'm really interested in. And um, seeing that in text form kind of unleashed, I think is exciting. So something that like, because to me, a book is very tidy and it's like, it's very neat. It's, uh, you know, it fits in your pocket. It's not even a film that fits in a case, but you have to have, you know, technology to watch it. And this period of time, to me, a book feels like one of the most tidiest art forms. And I like the idea of something really messy happening within it. And so that's where the id speaks parts came from. I started writing one long sentence and um, that I intended to break up later. And um, so I was just kind of free writing and then realized I was writing about desire and it felt like this really hungry voice that just didn't really need to be put in a cleaner essay. It actually needed its own three pages. And so I just decided to leave it and to name it that to kind of clue the reader in of like who was speaking. That again, it's part of myself, but it's maybe not who I am day to day, that it's like this hungry voice just kind of um, speaking desperately. Hmm. Well, an- another way you, you play with the title, Tonight I'm Someone Else, and with dislocation of self is in a very literal way with doppelgangers. Uh, there's another girl named Chelsea in the book. Yeah. It's also a girl who looks just like you. And there's this great line in one of the essays that I love. It's where you say, I wore salmon-colored cotton underwear the first time a boy touched me. His dog's name was Chelsea, and he told her to leave the room. I just... (laughs) Thanks. I I laughed very hard when I read (laughs) that. Thank you. It's an amazing line. (laughs) But it also feels to me like Abramovich is sort of a doppelganger. I don't know if that's true. But uh, I wondered, other than the way she appears as a character in your book, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how studying under her has influenced your writing and, and even what you gleaned from the installation that you actively participated in. Yeah. So, um, as a result of writing the chapbook, Pity the Animal and sending it to her and the Institute, I was eventually invited to work on her show generator, um, which is a six week, uh, installation at the Sean Kelly gallery in New York. And, um, it was, uh, just the gallery room closed off, so the visitors couldn't see it before entering, but they would come in, put their um, their belongings in a locker, and um, me or another performance facilitator would blindfold them and then put noise-canceling headphones over their head and guide them into a space that they had never seen. So in training for that job, we did two days of endurance training, and um, so... Um, there's just a series of exercises, mainly things done in slow motion, which she calls the Abramovich method. And this is something she teaches all over. So it's not really a secret, but, um, I just had the privilege of being really hands-on, 
um, with this other group and her. And um, that's how I eventually did the mutual gaze, which is the thing I was drawn to at MoMA in her performance. The artist is present, but never had the courage to do. So then I found myself in the very surreal situation of being instructed by her and her (laughs) assistant of like how to do it and um, doing it with uh, another performance facilitator. And so we did it twice, um, one sitting, one standing. And then I mentioned, I write about one of these um, instances in which the woman's face began to warp and looked like how she might look in 80 years. Like I just started hallucinating. And um, there was another uh, training exercise where we had to walk in slow motion across a room, like a long room for like an hour. (laughs) So just always moving, but very incredibly slow motion. And um, I think that informed my writing about the body. And again, about this like animal instinct of um, there's something, many things rather in our brains that we don't really have control over or that we don't fully understand or focus on. And um, that felt really exciting to me and made me think like anything I need in my art is actually inside me already. Like I just started thinking really big about all the things that I don't know about the physical or about another person's body and how simple that is. And um, Mm. so I think that's why I'm really drawn to those kind of like sensory moments in writing too. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned before we, we started, this is your first book tour. Um, and I wanted to talk about this issue of adopting personas, uh, juxtaposed against the inevitable way in which writing this book reveals yourself Mm -hmm. to the world. Um, so on the one hand, you have a background in journalism and have talked about how you felt at the beginning that writing pity the animal in a more academic way with lots of research and keeping yourself out of the spotlight might make people take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, you've talked about how when studying under Sarah Manguso that you expressed the fear of being too self-centered in your writing and that she encouraged you to be as self-centered as possible. So I guess I'm wondering how your fears about how the work is being received match up with your real world experience of publishing them, um, having this public revelation of self, even a self that yeah. likes to disappear in, in the desires of others. Has that been a, a, a difficult uh, thing in your life, a cathartic thing, a largely benevolent uh, experience? Yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. You know, I go through phases of like being really terrified, and um, because it is definitely a reveal of certain parts of myself that even people very close to me weren't fully aware of, you know, and there's something that happens in writing about something that I become fearless. Like, I don't really know why. And, um, it's something, it's like a way of me having the courage to reveal certain parts if they're artful almost. Mm -hmm. It's almost like if I feel like I'm making something interesting and, um, then it's okay to reveal it. (laughs) Like it's, I don't know. There's something about myself that makes that the place where it becomes public. Like I just let go of it in that way. And, um, so that is really terrifying to think that like people in your life that think that they know you, that there's parts of 
you that you just still haven't revealed out of necessity. Like you don't need to like, so, but then in writing about them, suddenly you are revealed. That is really scary and weird, but, um, ultimately I'm at peace with it. And that's the kind of art that I like reading. Like I love reading a book that's like, Oh my God, like (laughs) this person really, they went, really went there. And, um, I see them in their soul or like, I, even if that's not the case, I feel, I feel that way. And, um, I feel like they went to the end of themselves to, uh, to explore something. Mm. And so if I thought that I was doing that, then that is enough for me. And like, I'm ultimately willing to suffer the consequences of that being difficult in my personal life, I guess. Like I just, I'm really interested in portraying, um, certain elements of nonfiction that, uh, I feel like will be okay. Like, it's like, even if it's embarrassing or strange or uncomfortable that I, I'll keep living, it'll be okay. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you what we can expect from you next, but I'm also at the same time, after having watched the trailer that you created for this, I'm secretly hoping you're going to say it's an album and, <laughs> and or a film. But, but tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're working on. Well, thank you. I, I do often fantasize about being like a Miranda July type who just does it all. Like I just love her work so much. And, um, I definitely would love to make a film someday, but I feel like that's very far off, but, um, maybe someday, but, but you are a secret songwriter. I am a secret songwriter. That's true. And, um, uh, in doing the trailer, I'm trying to be less secret. So I went to the McDowell colony last year and there was a piano in my room and I hadn't played the piano for over 10 years, maybe 15, maybe almost 20. Like I took lessons as a child, but I can't remember the last time I was actually playing one. And, um, it just sounded so beautiful. And, um, like just the, the sound of the piano itself, it was just this old piano. So it was, it's very different than like the keyboard I practiced on as a child. (laughs) And so it really, uh, just having it in the room next to me and so much free time, I just started writing. So it did actually, invoke like a new excitement for music for me because I do play guitar and um, sing to myself but I think I am trying to take it more seriously and I I do want to do something really soon so I'm I'm actively writing more songs and seeing where that goes but my number one priority is I'm I'm I think like a third of the way through a novel that I started so I'm trying to totally shift gears with my writing and try to use what I think I learned about myself as a writer through writing essays and apply it to something totally different. Can you tip your hand a little on the novel or? I think I'll keep it to myself for a little bit because it's so new. I get, I don't want to, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to change my mind and then feel like I'm, I'm bound to it because I talked about it here. <laughs> like, um, yeah. but I am really interested in just having a whole new form and like a new narrator um, it's been really exciting and like freeing for me. Okay. So forgive me for just being slightly nosy despite you pushing back, but (laughs) could you name novels that you think are, um, in the same family? How about that? I don't think I can really, I'm think, I think my main influences are movies right now and films. What should we watch? Um, it's like, they're not like direct references. I'll send you the wrong way. You know what I mean? So the thing that I've been mentioning a lot in interviews that I think is like my main influence, and I think definitely applies to this project as well, is the movie Under the Skin. 
um, which is also a book, but I've actually never read the book. I'm either. obsessed with the movie because I'm obsessed with the soundtrack. Hmm. Um, and I think the soundtrack ins- inspired um, the essays in a lot of ways here. And I feel like it's also inspiring the atmosphere for my novel. Okay. So I just see that soundtrack. Yeah. Um, we won't hold you to this. Yeah, yeah. But no, I'm just saying like it's so it's still so new that I, I can't really fully articulate it. But I think the atmosphere of that film, I think, will apply to anything I do in the future. Like, okay. I just I love it so much. Well, thanks for being on Between the Covers today, Chelsea. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking today to writer Chelsea Hodson about her essay collection. Tonight, I'm someone else. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Chelsea Hodson's work can be found at chelseahodson.com. Chelsea also is adding a reading to the Patreon bonus archive, a piece called To a Duck in the Garden of Ninfa, a piece that is both a letter to an Italian mirror-gazing duck and a meditation on the essay form. This joins readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, and others. I also put Chelsea's trailer for Tonight I'm Someone Else up on the Patreon site, and hopefully I'll also be putting a video of Marina Abramovich's Rhythm Zero performance piece. All this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Mi, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.